Ladies and gentlemen, it is a privilege to welcome you for a discussion on the obstacles to freedom of the press in Latin America. This event is of the utmost importance given the context of a confluence of forces inimical to the freedom of expression, which is a freedom essential for the functioning of democracy. Unfortunately, the dangers and risks faced by journalists and even managers of media organizations all over the world multiply when threatened by radical ideologues, criminal consortiums, and even some governments adverse to the exam by the media of its programs and, and actions. I often read how journalism has become one of the most dangerous professions in our hemisphere. The assassination of journalists is frequent in Mexico and Venezuela and some neighboring countries. Likewise, likewise, let's not forget Russia and affiliated regimes in that part of the planet. Precisely in discussing this phenomenon with Armando Gonzalez, was how this conference came to being. It's also why I must thank the knowledge and invaluable work of Mr. Gonzalez in this field. I have asked him to lead the discussions among his colleagues in this event. We're also privileged to have with us today Ms. Gabriela Vivanco Salvador, a leading journalist and lawyer from Ecuador. And I welcome back my colleague Hector Chamis from Argentina and Washington, D.C. I want to point out the vital backing of Dr. John Walters, the Vice President of Hudson, which has been essential for bringing to life this and other projects related to Latin America here at Hudson. Lastly, our best wishes to Rachel Cox, our Director of Public Events. Rachel is leaving us for new horizons, and we wish her very well. Finally, thanks to my assistant, Laura Riz, for her infatigable cooperation. And without any further ado, I transfer the mic to Don Armando. Whatever you want, if you want to see it there, or, you, or if you want to talk. Um, good morning. Or what do you say when it's exactly noon? <laughs> it's afternoon? Okay, good afternoon. Thank you very much, Ambassador Derenblum, 
uh, thank you all for your interest in this matter, which is of the utmost importance, uh, especially for countries and peoples that are uh, subjected to regimes and situations where freedom of the press, uh, freedom of expression is less than what we would all desire. Um, usually when we talk about this, we talk about the more dramatic uh, means of repression of the press. Uh, murder, as it happens in Mexico at the hands of criminal organizations, narcotics traffickers, uh, as it happened in Colombia at the hands of guerrillas or paramilitaries. Uh, we usually speak of that sort of aggression because it is, of course, the most dramatic and we, it, it involves uh, life, which is the most important value of all. But there are other uh, means of repression, of freedom of speech and of the press. Um, one would be, for example, imposing a $90 million fine on a newspaper for defamation of the president, plus five years in jail. Now, if that wouldn't deter or have a chilling effect on freedom of expression and of the press in a country, what would? Uh, that it's short of murder, but it is financial murder, and it is very effective. So, a new wave of populist governments in Latin America realized that it doesn't give you good press if you throw journalists in jail, but there are other ways to stop freedom of expression from serving its function in the democratic society. You have, of course, um, fines. You have uh, control over concessions in the case of electronic me media, radio, uh, television. You have advertising. Uh, you have um, pressure over advertisers. Uh, and you have direct ownership of media by the government or by the government through proxy organizations. Uh, there is a whole movement of community radios in Latin America, especially in countries like Venezuela, Ecuador, which Gabriela will uh, tell us about their experience, uh, um, which he has, uh, I don't know if I should say, followed closely or been a victim of. And uh, there's a whole movement of, of community radios. And what that means basically is that the government takes control of, uh, of radio stations. In Venezuela, there are practically no more private or independent radio stations. They have been practically eradicated. In Ecuador, there is a huge network of community slash government slash this current government uh, uh, radios. So it's not state media, it's not NPR. It's govern government controlled by this current government. And what they, the function uh, these stations, radio stations uh, perform is obviously to 
criticize those who oppose the government and to uh, uphold the government's policies and praise uh, uh, government officials. So through all of these means, we have had uh, freedom of speech and of the press uh, retreating in Latin America with different characteristics in different countries. In mine in particular, they have not had success, but they've tried. And I'm going to tell you about that attempt. In Gabriela's, they have succeeded to, uh, not to the extreme that they did in Venezuela, um, but they have succeeded. And in Argentina, as Sector will um, uh, tell you, there has been an enormous battle where the difference has been marked by some, I would believe, and I don't know if Hector will agree with me, by some sectors of the judiciary which have uh, preserved their independence and the capability of pushing back against these terrible government efforts. So the situation is not the same everywhere. And of course, we do have to speak of Venezuela, which is today a dictatorship. It is no longer, it no longer tries it, it can no longer be in any way defended as any sort of a democratic process. And that is today, along with Cuba, the extremes in this matter we're, we're dealing with. But we thought it would be interesting uh, to have a conversation with you, not regarding murder and all of that, which we all know, uh, and not regarding uh, Venezuela specifically, but the effects of this whole populist uh, movement and the means they have developed other than violence. And yes, in Ecuador, there is violence, or there has been, but other than violence uh, to repress the media. How did we get here? Well, I think, I think they, they did notice that throwing journalists in jail or just killing them is not, it doesn't give you good press internationally. So they started to look for other means. And they developed those other means through established institutions and through law. This is the perversity of the whole thing. They have taken democratic institutions, used them to the point where they have been able to annul them um, and then forgotten about them. So here's how it works. First, you identify democracy with voting. A democratic nation is a nation where people decide by voting. So then you vote. And when you win, you change the rules. And you start weakening institutions. And you say, we were elected by a majority. So, since we were elected by a majority, I'm going to appoint new judges. And those judges will begin to affirm whatever other arbitrary measures I take alleging that I was elected by a majority. So, they just don't contemplate the possibility that the majority could become a, a minority, which is what happens in our countries every four, eight, twelve years, whatever. You know, suddenly the Republicans are the majority, so they get to live in the White House, and then the Democrats one day win. 
And that possibility is always there. That's what democratic Republican government is about. Our Latin American populists have eradicated that possibility by identifying democracy with voting and then coming to a point where they have replaced institutions and they no longer need to abide by the voting. So today you have, in an extreme case such as Venezuela's, you have a government that, uh, that doesn't really need to show any respect for even the voting process anymore. And it can take a legislature and say, go home because we're replacing you with a constitutional um, uh, assembly. And they name that, they, they appoint that constitutional assembly uh, to, uh, to suit their needs. So this is how we've gotten here. And today, in Venezuela, in Ecuador, even in Argentina, where there has been an important change in government, there are still laws in the books that allow uh, these governments to repress freedom of speech and of the press. Costa Rica's experience was one at the beginning of the current government, which is about to end. Uh, there was an attempt to pass a law along the lines of the laws that, that have been passed in Ecuador, in Venezuela, in Bolivia. It was a law that protected very important values. For example, the truth. So they were going to have an administrative uh, procedure to ascertain whether what I publish is true or not. Uh, the third time they decide that what I publish is not true, they could, in the case of radio and TV stations, they could nullify their concession. They can't do that with newspapers because we don't use the airwaves, which are, of course, a public property. So that was in a law that was sent to Congress by the government of arguably one of the most democratic nations in Latin America. This monstrosity was sent to Congress, and it included uh, stimulus for community radios. And, and it included, and this is in Costa Rica. So you can see how this wave of populist uh, leftist uh, thought has permeated even my country, which is um, often referred to as an example. We have many, many faults, but, but uh, we do have a strong institutionality. And it was challenged. It was challenged by a law that had within it the possibility of, uh, of uh, uh, taking away a concession from a radio station or a TV station because someone in the government disagreed with the veracity of what they published. And it had uh, the means in it to create a network of um, community 
radio stations. We have community radio stations in, in Costa Rica. There was a big program with Radio Netherlands, but they are really community radio stations. They are not uh, government-owned or influenced stations. And how did they, um, in the law, envision these stations? Well, they had to renew their concessions every year. In other words, every year the government would say, like this or like that, which means that they would obviously uh, be prone to uh, be mouthpieces for the government. We defeated this because in Costa Rica, our institutions have not yet suffered. And in Costa Rica, we still understand that voting is just one aspect of democracy, one we seldom practice, as a matter of fact. We do that every four years. We live our freedoms as citizens and our institutions every day. We vote every four years. Thank God we vote. It's very important. I'm not saying it is not. The problem is when you confuse voting with democracy. And democracy is a lot more than that. As a matter of fact, democracy is not the rule of the majority. It is the protection of the minority, which one day can become a majority within the democratic process. That's what it's about. The dictatorship of the majority is a horrible thing. And we have been experiencing it in Latin America, even though those majorities dwindle, and as in Venezuela, are no longer behind the government. But it's too late. The government has the institutions and therefore the means of repression. So it can now be a minority. It once was a majority. It can now be a minority and still hold power. That is how we got here. And those laws that fortunately we defeated in Costa Rica, but that came to be in Ecuador and to some extent in Argentina are one of the greatest uh, obstacles to freedom of the press and of expression in Latin America, where yes, we do have murder, we do have aggressions against journalists and media, uh, but this other aspect is one we should not lose sight of. And to help us in visualizing this, I want to invite Gabriela Vivanco, who has lived through it in Ecuador. Thank you very much. The microphone, it is working all right. Okay. Um, well, I want to thank the Institute and Ambassador Darenbaum and Armando. Um, and my colleague in, in the panel from Argentina. Um, I'm a journalist from Ecuador. I work for a media company um, that has been around for 35 years. And um, I am here to present the case of Ecuador. Uh, and uh, Armando's presentation has been uh, quite interesting because it really goes through the generalities of 
um, the script that we've been handed in Latin America and that has been uh, applied in Venezuela, it has been applied in Ecuador, and to a lesser extent it was attempted to be applied in Argentina, we also see it in places like Bolivia, Nicaragua. Um, and there is a clear step-by-step, -step, uh, almost like a roadmap that is followed by these neo-populist governments um, in order to take over all the institutions uh, and the branches of government and uh, become sort of like an electoral dictatorship um, or authoritarian regimes. Um, in Ecuador, we had our first populist president elected in 1937. It was a man um, who used to say, give me a balcony and I shall become president. He was a master public speaker. And um, we see in these populist uh, governments the same communication strategies uh, being used today with the difference that they have a huge amount of resources uh, to train people and to handle um, social media and new means of communication. It seems like uh, you can almost listen these, uh, to these uh, leaders say to their acolytes, uh, give me a troll center and I shall become viral. Um, this is how they uh, really get to reach the masses and really get to expand their uh, electoral base. Another one of the old strategies that we see that we've been uh, seeing in, in Ecuador since the 1930s and 1940s is um, the control that they have over the electoral system. They, uh, populist governments, especially these days in Latin America, tend to validate all their actions and all their moves through different uh, electoral processes. In Ecuador, we've had nine uh, elections or referendums in the past 10 years, and we're going into the 10th process uh, in February of 2018. Um, and uh, this is the way they, 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 they start changing the rules and they legalize uh, the, new the, the new rules for the, for the game, and uh, to the point where corrupt practices really become the norm. And uh, there's a new uh, form of government and for a form of um, uh, the way that the, that the government is conducted that gets instituted uh, little by little and step by step. It is important to understand that a country like Venezuela, which is today um, closely to a, to a failed state, I don't think dictatorship really cuts it, uh, how Venezuelans uh, or, or independent Venezuelans refer to it is as of uh, a narco state. And this, it's important to understand that this process doesn't happen overnight. It's taken Venezuela um, almost 18 years to get to, to the point where they are today. And in Ecuador, this process started in 2007 when President Rafael Correa uh, was elected for office. As soon as he was elected for office, um, over 10 years ago, he uh, promised that he was gonna draft a new constitution and so in 2008, there was an attempt to pass, uh, to pass approval at Congress to um, elect new members for a National Assembly who would draft a new constitution. There was a big opposition uh, in, in, in Congress, and so what they did is um, they just fired all the opposition members of Congress. They, they named replacements and they took over, the, over Congress. That was the first step. Um, since the, the opposition um, 
Congress people refused to leave the building, uh, what uh, the government of Mr. Correa did is that they allowed the military to open the gates of the building of Congress, and a mob just came into the building and, and dragged um, the opposition um, Congress people out, and a new majority was instituted. And since then, the government party has had House majority in Congress, um, and so they have been able to pass through or to be sort of the execution point of, or, the, or the executive arm of, um, of the presidency. Something that uh, the Constitution of 2008 also did is instead of having three branches of government, which traditionally are the executive, the justice system, and the um, Congress or legislative, they created two more. So they uh, raised the electoral system to be a fourth branch of government. Uh, and the purpose of this is that there is an electoral court um, that becomes the utmost authority of the country during periods of election. So um, the electoral period usually lasts between three and four months, between the time that elections are called uh, throughout the entire campaign, through the um, election process, and right up until the final results are announced, which can take almost a month after an election. And so throughout this whole time, the Constitution states that the electoral system and the electoral court is the utmost authority, which really has um, decision power over uh, freedoms such as freedom of the press and freedom of expression during elections. And they created a fifth branch of government, which they call um, the branch of transparency and social control. This is uh, a branch whose executive arm is a council of um, transparency and social control. And it has seven members, which are all directly or indirectly named by the executive. So the president and um, the different offices of the executive branch are the ones who name the members of the Transparency and Social Control Council. And this, um, in turn, is uh, the office that is appointed to um, name the members of the Constitutional Court. They also name the members of the Judiciary Council, which is the entity that appoints every single judge in the superior court and in the lower courts. And so this is how step number two was take over the justice system. They fired um, a lot, they destituted a lot of the, of the independent judges from previous years. They named brand new justices for the um, for superior court. And um, over the period of 2008 to 2012, they named 812 um, new judges. And we have seen today, in the past few months, uh, that there are many emails coming from the presidency and the different ministries of the executive where they go through every single one of the candidates that were um, appointed for the new, uh, the, new, the new justice system, all the new judges, where they handpick people that have either worked for the government or participated in the political party. And in the end, um, this new entity of social control is the one that also appoints all the um, state regulators. They, they appoint, directly or indirectly, the public defender, the human rights abundsman, the superintendents, which are um, the supervisors of communication, which is the one that deals with the press, uh, banking superintendent, uh, corporate, commercial, they also named the Controller General, the Prosecutor General, and the, and the Attorney General. 
So um, this is the way that control was managed, and this is the, the entity that really manages uh, the way that the president and his party controls all the branches of government. Um, and right after this, just like Armando was saying, they realized that it was not good, uh, good business to really put people in jail. And so what they did is they legalized a system of repression in which um, there's a lot of attacks. You can see that uh, half of the attacks on, on freedom of expression since 2007 um, have been targeted to the media companies, and 28% of the attacks are targeted to media employees. So over 60% of these uh, attacks on freedom of expression are really targeted to either independent and private media companies and their employees, or uh, independent journalists. Uh, they also placed in a system of criminalization of social protest, and by the way of using different crimes that are existent in the, in the criminal code, which are terrorism, sabotage, and libel, they have also been very successful in going after leaders of different social um, organizations, such as students. Um, for example, they've put in jail uh, many, about a dozen of indigenous leaders who have protested uh, in favor of their land and water rights. And they also um, use these against uh, um, leaders of LGBT associations, women's rights, um, and even lately they have used some of the libel uh, cases against people who are speaking out against um, children, um, child abuse in, in the public system, in the public education system. There's a lot of um, those cases going on right now, and some of the libel cases have been opened against those people who are speaking out. Um, and in the, in, in the consequence, for example, for freedom of the press, is that in the last 10 years, we have had over 20 independent radio stations who have had to close down. Two national print publications also went out of business, and um, the government seized two of the major um, national TV stations as well. So the way that they built this new communication system is a universe that's comprised by different legal um, norms and legal regulations that they've adapted and an executive um, entity that is the one that is in charge of applying all the regulations for the press. The first thing they did um, in, in, a, in a further in, 20, in 2012, a new constitutional reform is that they named information, instead of being a human right, it became a public good, just like electricity and just like water. And communication, which is the main vehicle to produce and distribute information, then became a public service. And this is in the Constitution today. And that's why the reforms that we need are so complicated, because they, they're, they're not only reforms to the communication law, but they're also urgent reforms that we need in the Constitution, which take a long time. So once communication becomes a public service, um, it may, it, it, for, some, for some people it wasn't a big deal when it was approved, but what it does is, is that it opens the gate for government to come in and regulate like they regulate any other public service. Um, and that's what really made, made it possible for them to implement laws between um, the different 
commercial regulations, antitrust regulations, uh, and many other regulations that uh, adopted um, new articles that were going against freedom of the press. So the new law, it really aims at uh, controlling content. It also regulates the way that TV and radio stations, the, free, the frequency are distributed, and uh, it creates a wide system of official and public media. So today, there are 43 uh, public media, what they call public media companies, which are really uh, controlled by, by the official party, which include national newspapers, national TV channels, and a, a, a websites, a news agency, and a wide range of um, national and local radio stations. Um, and the executive entity that is in charge of implementing all of this is it's called the Supercom, which is Superintendency of Communication. It, the way that it works is that the Supercom is an entity that accuses the media. It, it uh, receives uh, claims either from citizens, government agencies, or um, really claims by uh, the own employees of the Supercom. And they investigate the claims, they prosecute the claims, they judge the claims, and they, they are also the ones that implement any sanctions. Um, there are many sanctions, especially the ones for censorship, which is when a public event uh, does not is deemed to not have received enough coverage. And on the other side, we have the infraction of media lynching, which is when a public event receives too much coverage. And this, of course, is really up to the discretion of whoever is placing the claim and accusing a private media company. There's also a requirement to label content, so every single piece of information needs to be labeled as information, opinion, or advertising. And we, for example, our newspaper have received fines when um, a government official deemed that or considered that a piece of news or information uh, was issuing an opinion or a judgment. And so since it was supposed to be labeled as opinion, we received the fine for that. For that. There's also the figure of co-responsibility or joint responsibility, where media companies are deemed responsible for the content of um, information or opinion or, or even advertised that is placed in their pages or their, or their um, TV programming. And so we receive, for example, fines, and we've, we have as a, a newspaper been fined for the content of uh, an, an advertise, a piece of advertisement that the government didn't like. And then also it requires information, and this is um, how, it's text, how it's phrased in the, in the law, information needs to be verified, balanced, and exact. And so of course this is so ambiguous that it leaves a lot of room for um, the authority to go out and present new claims and open cases against any kind of information that they don't approve of. The sanctions that are applied for these infractions usually come in the form of replies or corrections, and they also are um, they come in the form of incremental and cumulative fines. For example, when a newspaper or a TV channel or radio station is fined, uh, the fine is calculated over um, the total amount of sales of the average of the last three months. So it's not even applied on the basis of profit of the media company. It's, it's just um, applied on the, on the volume of sales. Um, 
Oh, this is not, I can't see. Uh, well, this is an example, and I had a cartoon, but for some reason we can't see it. Um, this is an example of how uh, the the replies are are placed into action in a newspaper page. So they started by requesting um, the same space. You know, for a correction or a reply, um, I, I, uh, a government official would call the newspaper and say, well, I want to reply, and so you had to interview them and, you know, um, add whatever they needed to add or they wanted to respond. But it evolved into uh, the government sending pieces of information with a specific design that usually matches the style and the font of, a, of each specific um, publication so that it sort of is confusing for the reader. Uh, and, and it makes the reader think or it makes, it makes the reader wonder um, if this is really something that's been produced by the newspaper. And um, it is very common that they would force us to, to place these replies on the front page like we see in this, in this case. And sometimes what the newspapers or what we would do is, for example, we issue, we um, place sort of like a sign and it says advertencia, like a warning, and we are explaining, the re explaining to the reader that this is not something that we produce and this is something that's been imposed on us um, or else we would be fine. But we still got to find for placing the warning there on top of that. Um, there have been 859 cases against independent media and um, journalists open uh, using these, this mechanism in the past four years. Um, about half of those, 401, were actually initiated by the Supercom. So if you go to, um, if, you, if you receive a claim uh, or, or you're denounced by uh, the Supercom, you receive a notice and then you have to go to a hearing. Right, and so it works very much as in any hearing. Uh, if you're representing the newspaper, you go and you sit next to your attorney, and then the t in the in the table right next to you, there is an employee of the Supercom who's acting as the victim, sitting next to another employee of the Supercom who's acting as the prosecutor, and you sit in front of a judge who's also an an employee of the Supercom, and it's sort of like a mockery, um, and and it's very very exhausting. It's very expensive to keep a legal team. Um, for national newspapers, imagine what it's like for a small local newspaper or radio station. They need to keep lawyers uh, in their payrolls. They need to spend money to reply to all these um, hearings. They need sometimes, they even need to travel to the capital, to the bigger cities to just assist to these uh, hearings where they know what the verdict is going to be like. Um, in those 401 cases initiated by the Supercom, they, uh, almost all of those resulted in a, in a favorable uh, sentence to the Supercom, and sanctions were applied in 529 cases. Um, and what we see is a holistic attack on independent media. Uh, and, and by holistic, I mean they, they really have figured out how to tackle every single aspect of uh, the independent media companies to really squeeze them out and either be successful in quieting them down, uh, having them to sail, or uh, sort of just barely make it throughout these past 10 years. And they've, uh, they've really gone after the assets of independent media. So if you think about it, an independent media company has sort of three uh, sources of value. Number one, it's their brand uh, or their reputation that we, they 
they've been able to build over the years. Um, Presidente Correa uh, has, every Saturday, he had a, a national broadcast on TV uh, in which he would insult um, he would insult uh, the newspaper owners, the journalists, he would publish their faces. And again, I had, a, I had a picture here in the presentation, I don't know why it's not there, of President Correa at one of the famous times in which he ripped the newspapers uh, in front of the TV cameras. And so it's been sort of like a constant attempt to discredit uh, newspapers and their journalists, as well as TV channels and radio stations. Um, and then they also use the, pri the, the public platform to spread their own news. Number two, uh, other than the brand and the reputation, they also uh, went after the employees of media companies. So they went after reporters, editors, and, and employees in general. They did something, for example, that they raised the minimum wage only for journalists. And so to, these day, uh, to, to, to this day, the minimum wage for a reporter in any media, private media company uh, is about 402, uh, 240% above the minimum, the general minimum wage. And it is, the high, there's, there's a few uh, industries in which the minimum wage is regulated, but for the journalists, is the highest one. And they also require that the news, the new, uh, independent news media hire only university degree graduates um, in their newsrooms. And so this really, places a lot of constraint for the smaller and local um, media companies because it is very hard for a radio station in a small uh, town in, 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 a, in a province of the interior to hire only uh, grad, university degree graduates um, to work in their newsrooms and to pay them the minimum wage required by law. So in consequence, it really places a, a, a big strain and this is, this, it is important to understand that all of these regulations are enforced. And so the media companies are required to file um, a quarterly report to the authorities in which we have to disclose the name of all of our employees, especially the ones in the newsroom. We have to determine, we have to um, include in this report information with their ID numbers, their phone numbers, and their personal addresses. So the people uh, working for the media organizations, um, they're under constant threat and fear because they do receive personal attacks and personal threats in their homes, in their phone numbers, and to their families. And in the end, what really happens is it, it really places a toll on the quality of journalism that is produced. Uh, journalists often, more often than not, refuse to sign their articles. Editors don't want to edit somebody else's work because they are afraid to be found um, co-responsible for uh, the infraction of censorship, for example. And in the end, um, the third source of value for media companies is, of course, the advertisers and the sales revenue. Um, and the way that this was tackled was, again, very in, in a sort of like a holistic matter in the sense that um, public advertising was absolutely banned from independent companies. They also went after our private uh, advertisers. Um, and we have memos uh, issued by the executive branch in which there is a, an official list of approved uh, media compa companies in which private companies are allowed to uh, place advertisement if they want to keep the government contracts that they have. Um, and they also, as I said before, place significant fines um, 
and they apply certain restrictions or certain new uh, tax provisions for media companies. So there was an, uh, an additional sales tax added to the, to the sale of every single newspaper, for example. And they have just very recently placed a tariff on the imports of paper for um, newspapers. There are also constant inspections from tax authorities, labor authorities, the fire department, banking authorities, in which they come and uh, they bring maybe a, a, we had a, a, an circulation audit about a month and a, a year and a half ago in which we received 15 people in our newspaper and they sat there for two weeks going every single one of the aspects of production. They demanded to know exactly how many uh, kilograms of paper came out of the, uh, came out of the warehouse. Uh, they, we even got to a point where we were able to determine that each single printed page of newspaper weighed 2.525 grams, and that's how they got um, the calculation that the numbers between the weight of the paper that came out of the warehouse did not match the circulation that we have to print in our front page because we are required to print the exact number of the circulating units for every single day in our newspapers. And sometimes, you know, those don't match by 100 to 100 because um, there was a miscalculation or, you know, in the sales or, 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 for example, a distributor didn't show up for work, so you didn't really put out 200 newspapers in that corner that same day. And then again, we received um, a significant fine for that. And um, another thing that they did, which is also in the Constitution and in two different laws, is the fact that they banned uh, the owners of shares of independent news, uh, news media, uh, the editors of media, of um, independent media, or, or I guess private media, and the, uh, the, the, the board members of independent media to participate in any other commercial or professional activity. So, for example, the publisher of our newspaper used to be an attorney, and um, he is now banned from practicing law. Um, and this, uh, this regulation also extends to the spouses. So uh, the spouse of a newspaper publisher is not allowed to hold any single uh, interest in any other commercial activity that is not related to communication. So what this really aims to do is, um, more often than not, we, we see, and especially these days for the media, especially the printed media is a shrinking business. Um, we see uh, media companies trying to diversify their activities so that they can actually um, subsidize the newsrooms uh, because it is an expensive operation and there's not enough money coming in from advertising, especially under these conditions. But with these rules, it is very difficult to maintain um, an independent editorial line or um, any sort of financial stability. Um, and I had a map here, which I am sorry it's not there, but this is quite important. So what ends up happening again is either newspapers and media and uh, TV and radio stations, uh, they have to, they're forced to slim down. Uh, there's a lot of cuts in personnel. There's um, a lot of shrinking newsrooms. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, firing people and trying to keep the operation as efficient and as low cost as possible. Uh, in some other cases, other newspapers and TV channels had to close down. And in the case of El Comercio, which is uh, 
quite quite important. This is a newspaper that is over 115 years old. It was it is the second oldest newspaper in Ecuador, and it was the largest um, circulating newspaper in Quito, which is the capital. And it used to be our fiercest competition. In 2015, it got sold, and it got sold to a man by the name of Angel Gonzalez, who is um, a, Me uh, a Mexican-born Guatemalan citizen who actually lives in Miami, Florida today. He owns over 40 TV stations, radio stations, um, and this newspaper in eight countries in Latin America. And what he does through a series of offshore companies and, and proxies is he goes to different Latin American countries and he buys influential uh, channels of communication and media and he is not necessarily, um, he does not necessarily apply a, a, an editorial line that is friend, that is um, positive or friendly to governments. But what he does is that he leaves the governments alone. So, for example, in Guatemala, he owns uh, the four main national TV stations, and um, it is widely known that before any presidential election, uh, all the candidates go to him, go visit him in his house in Miami, and they negotiate um, the rates for public and political advertising even before the campaign starts. And once somebody comes to, gets to office, um, there is a lot of, in the terms of um, concessions, uh, granted to him and his personal companies. And again, he does not uh, publish a lot of positive news for the government, but he doesn't publish anything negative either. And the media that he controls are usually media that um, have a lot of um, audience, not necessarily political influence, because there's really no substantial journalism being done. But the audience is sort of kept in the dark. And this is how his system works. And this is why this is also a regional threat to freedom of expression and freedom of the press. And in the end, um, we had presidential elections in Ecuador in May of 2017, and there was a change of president after Mr. Correa, who was there for 10 years. Um, and the, his successor is also a member of the same political party. They are now currently uh, divided. So the party is really divided between the followers of ex-presidente Correa and the followers of the brand new president, Moreno. Um, but we really haven't seen any advances um, or any improvements in legal reform with regards to the freedoms that we're talking about today. Even though it was um, offered during the political campaign, he met with, and he has met with publishers and, um, and the editors of, of the media organizations, of the private media organizations. Uh, there's promises that are being made, but there's really nothing that has been taking place yet. There's going to be a new constitutional referendum. Um, he has offered uh, his opponents, I guess the opposition, that they're going to tackle some of the main constitutional um, problems that we have with regards to the separation of powers and this fifth estate. So one of the questions for the referendum called for February in 2018 is um, they're asking the people to approve a change in the regulation and operation of um, the, the branch of uh, participation and social control. Now, they're not saying what the change is going to be about. They're not, uh, there's not a clear um, 
written uh, direction of how this is going to this is going to happen if it gets approved. But we only know that that's the question that's going to be asked, and then it's going to be up to um, Congress, who also is uh, held by the majority of the official party, to see how they really implement these changes. And um, even though the new president, and there's a lot of uh, sort of good international press. Uh, there's saying that you know the, the climate in Ecuador is changing. Uh, he is less confrontational. He does not insult um, everyone on his Saturday broadcasting space. Um, there's really he's eliminated that 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 space of the Saturday broadcasts. Um, but there's really no uh, clear picture of uh, when there's going to be changes in legislation with regards to the, the new communication law. I mean the old communication law. And um, there is mixed signals. For example, this week, uh, there, it was announced that a $90,000 fine placed to a cartoonist uh, was dismissed by the Supercom. But also, just yesterday, um, a TV channel called Tele Amazonas, which is a national independent TV channel, received a new claim by the Supercom regarding um, some information that they didn't agree off. And they had a hearing, uh, which uh, is is uh, due to be resolved next week. Um, so I guess we will see. And another thing that's really important to keep in mind is the fact that there's hundreds of processes against media companies and journalists that have been open or that were open in the past years, and these are still open. So even though they're not being reactivated in the, in the um, supercom or communication system, they're still there and they could be activated anytime. Um, so what we have done with different, as media uh, organizations as, and as journalists, we have drafted a roadmap in which we, we are requesting different organizations um, like the Organization of American States, um, like United Nations, and we are requesting uh, like, a, like a set of um, things that need to be implemented soon. Number one, we need the Supercom to resolve the pending processes for, uh, for media companies and journalists. We also need, uh, we're requesting the executive to reform the regulations for the laws because even though a, a change in the Constitution and a change in the law is going to take a long time if we follow through the um, legal process to do that, uh, the executive branch has the power to change the regulations of the law which are called reglamentos in Spanish. And this can be done um, right away. So we are really placing a lot of, um, trying to raise awareness with the fact that this can be done now and we don't really have to wait for the legislative process to uh, get all the, uh, the changes we need. We also are requesting the government to dismantle the system of state propaganda, including the financing of um, what we call the troll centers, and for them to stop tapping on the intelligence offices so that they can gather um, intelligence and spy on members of the opposition and private citizens. Um, and I think that's it. We, again, uh, what we really, and this is why we're here, we're really trying to raise awareness of the fact that even though we have a president that is less confrontational, there's really a long way to be done, uh, especially 
I mean, with the regards of the change to law, but especially with the need to strengthen institutions. Um, in Argentina, it, in, and this is, a, I guess we're going to hear about this, something that really uh, made the difference with the advancement of these populist regimes is the fact that they managed to secure some independence in the justice system. And so in the region, we really do need um, to work on strengthening the democratic institutions and the separation of power, which is really going to hopefully someday place back a system of checks and balances that we can count on. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you, Hudson. Thank you, Jaime, for your invitation. Thank you, my co-panelists, Gabriela and Armando. Um, I had a sort of a different uh, game plan for today, but while Gabriela was um, giving her presentation, I remember last week I was watching Fernando Rincón and Conclusiones, and Correa was there, who had returned to Ecuador, I don't know exactly for what, but anyway, he doesn't know exactly for what. But anyway, in, in the conversation, which was all over, and Correa was, you know, very much himself, but also is sort of a, a, a worse version of himself, making fun of people, making fun of uh, Fernando Rincón as well. And Fernando Rincón was a little bit exasperated also, and that, so the conversation was going all over. But all of this to say that, at some point, Fernando tells him, recriminates Correa about the uh, the way he treated journalists while in office. The Sabatinas, which is all this, you know, show that he used to have every Saturday for about you know three hours, you know, nonstop harassing people, intimidating people, and so on and so forth. And particularly, uh, the Rincón was you know highlighting the way he treated uh, female journalists and with the with insults and with derogatory adjectives and remarks and this and that. And Correa was you know, unfazed and, and, and at some point said, look, Fernando, look. <laughs> yeah, I'm translating Correa. Was, oh, the whole thing was in Spanish. But anyway, look, Fernando, the press treated me harshly so many times. And the press criticized me uh, so many times. Yes. Wait, well, I'm doing the same. I've been doing the same. Uh, and he was completely, you know, ignorant, impenetrable. Fernando Regón was trying to get to the fundamental constitutional mechanism involved in, in that exchange, in that situation, which is, well, that's what the press is for, to check on power. Uh, and he was power. He was the president for 10 years. And then he thought that it was symmetrical, the treatment that he could uh, dispense the press with, that it was about the same thing, as if it was a symmetrical relationship. Uh, Rafael Correa, the president for 10 years of a country, the head of state, uh, also always remember that in, in presidentialism, uh, the head of government, the head of state is the same person, which is, you know, uh, something uh, important about the, the way power is exercised, uh, and uh, the press, journalists, individuals. Uh, in that conversation, women or some particular female journalists that had, had been mistreated by, uh, by Correa. Anyway, all of this to get into 
some of my notes and I, I wanted to say something general uh, before I get to Argentina which is perhaps interesting and but it's been already addressed the, the key thing there was that uh, the judiciary was independent the Supreme Court was independent in Argentina uh, very much to the uh, disdain of Nestor and Cristina Kirchner and there is a, a little bit of a political story of why that was the case and uh, private media organizations uh, decided to resist the offensive of the government to, to take over the, the groups, to control information, to intimidate journalists, individuals, to, to harass them, etc., etc. Uh, and, and by the time, you know, the, the process was, you know, 2015, it was an electoral year and it was uh, no, no time to go back to any sort of, you know, Kirchner uh, idea. Opposition won, the opposition won, a coalition that is in power today, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Let me start by saying a couple of things. I sort of disagree with, you know, the conventional wisdom, and, and some of that conventional wisdom was here. When Latin America got into the 21st century, there was something unique that happened to the economies of the region, which was, you know, this extraordinary bust, uh, boom of prices, uh, this extraordinary, uh, unprecedented, uh, favorable terms of trade for most Latin American countries. For countries historical, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, uh, Colombia never saw better terms of trade in, in their history. Argentina, you had to go, you know, something like 60, 70 years back to see something equivalent in terms of the, the relationship between the imports and exports. The relationship between the import, the prices of what a country imports and the price of what a country exports. Therefore, uh, there was a lot of money in Latin America. And governments had a lot of money, uh, uh, fiscal, very robust fiscal sectors that uh, began to kick in gradually early in the 21st century uh, and was fundamental because it it, it fed uh, something that is very Latin American in terms of political strategy, which was clientelism. And Latin America always had a very strong clientelistic component in its political process, not only in Latin America, but in Latin America. It was the case where all this extraordinary windfall uh, fed all that clientelism. Something else happened, uh, which was the unfortunate coup attempt in Venezuela 2002. Uh, the misguided, ill-conceived, and, 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 and really, you know, unfortunate uh, coup attempt in April 2002 when uh, Chavez was out of power for about 48 hours and came back to power. Uh, the immediate consequence of that was to bring Venezuela closer to Cuba. Uh, there had been already quite a bit of sympathy in Latin America with the Chavez experiment. Uh, until that moment, which uh, up until that moment I would qualify, I would characterize it as a sort of, you know, a reproduction of a traditional populism, if you want, in Latin America. But the coup attempt brought Venezuela close to Cuba, and uh, and that changed the game dramatically. If if you think about it, is it, it generated a very aggressive foreign policy on the part of Venezuela at the time. We we did address Venezuela already here. Uh, think about this. ALBA was created in 2004, Petrocaribe in 2005, UNASUR in 08, and CELAC in 2010. 
that's the new alphabet soup of Latin American international relations. Uh, and that meant, uh, for the first time perhaps, uh, Cuba through Venezuela in Latin America. And, uh, and that was dramatically important. Venezuela still suffers today from that you know, partnership. And, and, and Havana calls the shots of what happens in Caracas and, and beyond. Uh, but here's my a little bit of my dissent, or the dissent is not important, but what is important is to call attention to this, because all of this is called populism. Uh, in the normal conversation, in the conventional wisdom, the public conversation, fine with me. As long as we remember that it's a lot more than populism. It's a lot more than the traditional populism that we've seen in Latin America over you know, generations, or you know, since at least 1930s and particularly 1940s. So, sometime in the interwar period, there was the beginning of this phenomenon that we call populism with different characteristics, but still. Uh, and this is important because what, what happened here is that, if anything, the traditional populism married uh, Stalinism. And that, uh, and that is new. That is new, and we, we haven't uh, come to terms with that. The issue is perpetuation in, in power. Populism. Uh, while not comfortable, uh, while not happy with abandoning power, uh, did abandon power over time. Uh, in Argentina, Peronism left power two, three times already, lost elections. The PRI in Mexico lost an election, changed the, the, the electoral rule in, in 2006. No, I'm sorry, in the, in the late 90s. In 2000, lost the election. Uh, left power, turn over to another party. Uh, that is the, uh, and that is the strongest type of populism we've seen in Latin America. But what, is, what has been at stake here is that power cannot be abandoned. Uh, and that is not populism. That is more the Cuban influence, the Stalinist influence, the Castro influence uh, in the rest of Latin America. Taking, taking over quite a bit, if you want, uh, the populist identity, the populist experiment, the populist experience in Latin America in, in quite an effective way. This is when we start seeing uh, the Constitution turn into a uh, tailor-made suit. Uh, what is going on in Bolivia today, because the, the, the president, you know, violating the Constitution yet again, wants to stay for a fourth term, indefinite re-election, it's been a pattern in which we've gone from one term to two, from two to three, and from three to indefinite re-election. And Korea went back to Ecuador, particularly in this case, because uh, apparently the sitting president wants to hold a plebiscite uh, on whether they, the people support uh, indefinite re-election or not. And, and he went back to prevent that from happening, because that's a, a major uh, accomplishment of our party, Pais, that's the name of the party that uh, he said the other day in, on TV uh, the other night. Now, uh, this, with, res with regards to the, the constitutional architecture that we're facing today, and some of that has been addressed before, uh, that require, requires two conditions to happen. The perpetuation in power requires two conditions. Number one, a subjugated judiciary, uh, where the executive always gets favorable rulings. Uh, the Castro regime never got a, an adverse uh, sentence in court. Uh, with the, since the new 
Supreme Court in Venezuela, there's not, there hasn't been a negative ruling for the government, for the executive. The packing of the Supreme Court has become the name of the game to control the judiciary. What, has, what is uh, in the, on the basis of what's going on uh, in Ecuador, very much so, and uh, what, uh, as, as we say, what didn't happen in Argentina uh, uh, before. The other, uh, the other condition is the domesticated press. Uh, so the society doesn't criticize, so that uh, pluralism is avoided, diversity of information and points of view is completely obliterated. Uh, in other words, uh, a media context where the official narrative uh, is guaranteed, uh, which is very much needed to stay in power. Uh, the Venezuela case is the extreme, of course, the Cuba case. The Venezuela case is extreme in the sense that the official media, Venezuelans are dying because there is no medicine in the hospitals and there is no food in the, uh, in the supermarkets. And moreover, uh, assistance is distributed by the government on the basis of electoral districts. I mean, they send uh, food uh, packages, the so-called CLAP, to uh, supportive districts, not to opposition districts. Uh, now. This is the name of the game that we face, the, the domestication of the press, uh, which at the same time happened on the shoulders uh, of a new reality uh, that has been addressed before, and we need, we need to do a lot more work to address this, which is the changing nature of the information industry. Uh, what does that mean is that there's been dramatic technological change uh, social media, globalization of information, excess supply, uh, among others, uh, and declining profits for media organizations wherever you go, wherever you go in the world, in Latin America and elsewhere. Given that uh, the strategy of firms was to develop economies of scale to survive. Uh, develop economies of scale meant uh, the creation of media conglomerates. In other words, uh, organizations that are horizontally diversified, successful, right? The successful organization, private-owned organizations are, for the most part, uh, horizontally, or horizontally diversified. Uh, that is, property and presence in, in a variety of uh, technological uh, tools, written and audiovisual media, for the most part, and vertically integrated organizations. In other words, going from the production of their provision, from the production of information to the provision of cable and telecommunications. We live in a world in which uh, convergence is the key word. And, and that led to a dramatic concentration of uh, news organizations. Uh, those who are not concentrated and are not diversified enough uh, are losing money in the US, in Latin America, in Europe, wherever you go. And that's a big challenge uh, because uh, that has made private-owned media a target uh, of attack, uh, given this concentration, uh, which is a dilemma for a democratic society and is a dilemma for governments that are, in turn, democratic. Oftentimes, uh, that has been addressed by closing down private media, and oftentimes the alternative of not having a concentrated 
privately owned media means not having private press, period. Uh, and that is not a good recipe for a democratic society. But these also serve as a pretext by relatively or more or less authoritarian government, more or less populist, more or less uh, Stalinist, however you want to call it, that address the question of media control using the concentration of resources in the private, in the private conglomerates, private firms, as a pretext. Uh, and that was very problematic because in the economies of today, there is also concentration in banking, air transportation, and a number of industries. Uh, the question becomes how to regulate uh, an industry that is heavily concentrated in the expectation that a heavily concentrated organ sector, industrial sector, uh, damages the interest of the consumer. Uh, the problem is that the consumer of news is the citizen. It's not just that, that whoever borrows and gets a mortgage, or it's not that that takes a plane to go somewhere. Now, the question is how to regulate. Uh, and there is a difference because uh, if it is a matter of regulating uh, ownership, it's a microeconomic problem. But it has become in these governments a matter of regulating content, intimidating journalists, uh, and destroying media outlets that refuse to enroll and obey the ruler. Uh, and that is a completely different story in this, in this uh, problem of whether and how to regulate uh, news organizations. Uh, we are, therefore, in many Latin American countries, we've been uh, in Ecuador, um, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, in uh, much of Central America as well, we are in the hands of political commissaires. Uh, and that is a, a big problem for democratic societies uh, because of what Rafael Correa doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that the role of the media is to investigate power. And therefore, the media has to be independent. And the journalists have to have rights protected. Much of the debate that we're having in the US has to do with that. Uh, Donald Trump, unfortunately, uh, does behave a little bit like Rafael Correa. Uh, he calls journalists by, the, by their names, single out organizations, and, and he shouldn't be a, a allowed to do that because precisely in our, our meaning U.S. constitutional tradition, we created a fourth branch of power, uh, the media, uh, journalism, whose role is precisely to check on power. Now, uh, the... While there have been all this bullying towards private-owned groups, uh, these governments have been building their own private, they, their own monopolies, except that they've been building the uh, public monopolies uh, with taxpayers' resources. And with a very clear institutional model that came out today before in the, in the previous presentations, um, they did present, and this is why there is a debate that we need to have in more intelligent terms and in more persuasive terms, which is that public ownership is also a form of regulation. It's in, in, in electricity generation, that's the way it's been. In, in, in energy, public ownership has been a, a way of regulating a, an industrial sector. But uh, there are let's say, two diametrically opposed regulatory models, models in, in, in the public ownership of media. Uh, one is Granma, uh, 
the, the Cuban model. Uh, the other one is the BBC, if you want, which is also a, a public-owned conglomerate that guarantees pluralism, independence, and, uh, and, and reproduces the existence of the fourth state. We need to address this problem because these rulers that we've had in Latin America over the last decade or so have been telling us, among other things, things like, well, the BBC is also publicly owned, it's, it's state-owned, and this is what we're doing, and it's, it's, it's an effective, professional, uh, plural, and, uh, and democratic media outlet. Well, that's not what they've been doing. The institutional model that they develop is much closer to grandma, a monopoly that is a reproduction of the official word, a monopoly of propaganda more than an information outlet. And this is a debate we haven't had so far, more than in snippets of this, and we need to, because this is where they have gone and we haven't confronted them on this issue. Uh, publicly owned media outlets under Correa, under Evo Morales, under uh, Chavez or Maduro are unrelated to BBC. <laughs> this is grandma there, the Cuban model. Uh, and then we need to uh, uh, be alert and, and work a little, a lot harder on this important issue, which is at the roots of how they've managed to uh, launch this onslaught on independent media, uh, oftentimes private-owned, but also public-owned, right? You know, journalists, individuals that work for state-owned outlets, and if they attempted to keep their independence, have been, you know, fired, harassed, intimidated, thrown in jail, and, and, and everything else. A little bit about Argentina. Uh, so that, um, yes, Argentina fell within this group of countries except that the judiciary was independent. Why was the judiciary independent? Because Nestor Kirchner came to power in 2003 with 23% of the vote. <laughs> and the weakness was a blessing in disguise for Argentina, his weakness. Therefore, upon coming to office with that little uh, support, with 23% of them, there was going to be a second round. Argentina has a French system. The second round didn't happen because the other front runner uh, didn't run. So it was canceled. And Nestor Kirchner was sworn in. Uh, with that little support, uh, he had to make deals with other parties. And, and one of the deals he made uh, with some other parties uh, was to uh, reform the Supreme Court uh, and make it truly independent with uh, competent, independent uh, judges uh, who would uh, be selected on the basis of their academic and juridical standing, not on the basis of politics. As a result, Argentina turned out to have an independent Supreme Court. Uh, by accident, you know, <laughs> and uh, and that's very much uh, at the roots of why uh, the Kirchner government, when she particularly first a little bit Nestor, but then his wife wanted to advance on 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 independent media, uh, the judiciary was very much you know standing up to them. the The main story is the Clarín story, the, the the biggest media conglomerate in Argentina third media conglomerate in Latin America with newspaper, magazines, radios. Uh, yeah, one, a big, big conglomerate. Uh, cable and, and now 
getting into, <laughs> into mobile telephone business. Because, yes, convergence is the name of the game. Everything comes together, and, and Clarín is destined to be very successful. We'll see who and when Clarín gets regulated, but anyway. Now, Nestor Kirchner wanted a piece of Clarín back in, in his presidency between 2003 and 2008. Uh, he wanted to negotiate a piece of the stock, a piece of the, of the group. Uh, Clarín refused. Uh, when Clarín refused to negotiate, Nestor Kirchner wanted to do it by force. And that was the beginning of the uh, onslaught on Clarín and all this offensive on, on the part of intimidation, uh, some violence, uh, the complete delegitimation of Clarín, accusations, uh, intimidation of Clarín's journalists, individuals in particular, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, trying to bring Clarín to the table of negotiation, open up the, the stock, uh, and share a part with Nestor Kirchner himself. Uh, that didn't happen. Clarín resisted. Uh, it was war. I mean, that's how you know the CEO of Clarín got cancer in the process, and uh, he survived. Uh, however, there is a book, if you're interested, by Hector Magneto, uh, Asilo Vivillo, which is a book on, on all these experiences. It's very well narrated. Uh, and, uh, and I have to write a, a review of the book uh, for Clarín that they asked me. But anyway, that's a different story. Now, when this happened, uh, the press got emboldened. The independent press got emboldened. The Supreme Court stopped all institutional attempts by Christina Kirchner to take over the independent media as much as to change the rules of the game to get herself reelected. The Constitution says that uh, you have two terms, consecutive terms, uh, and you're out. Uh, she wanted a third. She explored that possibility. She wanted to also change the Constitution. But the Supreme Court shut the door uh, pretty violently end of it. This is unconstitutional. Uh, on December 10, 2015, that was you know, some of the rulings of the Supreme Court. On December 10, uh, 2015, you have to go home. Uh, and that's what happened. Uh, and now Argentina is uh, in, a, in an optimistic phase. Uh, Jaime knows this, <laughs> what I think about it. Trying to uh, rebuild uh, not a destroyed constitutional state, but an eroded constitutional state, which, in contrast to what happened in Ecuador, what happened in Venezuela, what happened in many of these uh, Alba, Petrocaribe, uh, CELAC countries, was pretty much the, the dramatic erosion of the constitutional state, if not the destruction of the constitutional state altogether. Armando was saying a few things about the, the so-called Constitutional uh, Assembly of Venezuela, which is uh, simply a a, a, a parliament of Soviets, I mean, in other words, right? And, uh, and this is the challenge, I think. We need to uh, rebuild our constitutional states. Uh, democracy is a system uh, about, the, about coming to power, and it's a system about, uh, it's, it's a, method, a method for coming to office, and it's a method for exercising power once you're there. And uh, Armando made a, quite a couple of eloquent comments on, well, we, we've, 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 we know the first part, you know, the method for coming to office, not the way 
Now, the second uh, definition of democracy, which is how power must be exercised in the democracy. And that's a big challenge of democracy in the continent, to rebuild the constitutional state, which is a prerequisite to guaranteeing an independent, healthy, free uh, press in a, in a virtuous circle uh, of democratic stability. Thank you very much. I don't know, Dr. Darren Bloom, if we have time for a couple of questions. Uh, if, yes, yes, of course. If there are any. Is there any question? Everything was very clear. <laughs> Looks that way, yes. Latin America, but uh, Professor Shamis uh, referred to uh, what's happening here with the president. He, he speaks about fake news. And, you know, I think that the people who follow him believe that all that is in the news is fake. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, this is also, um, for example, happening in Costa Rica in, in our democracy. There, there are uh, politicians who have uh, decided to take that path. Now, uh, the difference is uh, when you have uh, a government with authoritarian inclinations that dictates what is fake. And when you have, within a democratic society, someone insisting on whether uh, news organizations do a good job or do not, uh, there is an important difference there. I, I, I understand the debate that is going on here. I understand the debate that we have in Costa Rica. No, our objective is not to uh, present fake news. On the contrary, it is often the politicians who try to fake the news. <laughs> but uh, and it's been that way for a long time. Uh, but that debate, though um, inconvenient, and, and I do feel uncomfortable with these attitudes, uh, is completely a different thing that, than what we've been talking about, because we've been talking about how to impose, about governments that impose a certain version of the truth. And that was part of what was in that law that we defeated in Costa Rica. And the obsession with having someone uh, um, ascertain whether something is true or not is common to all of these authoritarian aspirations. And they always try to say, we're defending the truth, and therefore we're establishing this institution to uphold it. So they dictate what is true or not officially. Here you have a debate, and that's a, a, different, a different story, I think. Um, let, let's leave outside for a moment what President Trump's, uh, Trump wants to do or doesn't want to do. I, I do agree that the, the words used to refer to media organizations and, and journalists by a sitting president is unprecedented, but nevertheless. The United States is the constitutional state. And uh, 
to do the kinds of things we've seen in Latin America would require, uh, I don't know if he wants to do that or not, I don't think so, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, judges and, uh, and, and, and journalists and news organizations and, and the constitutional mechanism is intact, uh, which is not the case in Latin America, where the constitutions have been tailor-made for a president to, to stay in office forever, to control the media, to, to throw people in jail. It's, I mean, nothing is impossible in politics, but it's very close to impossible to even conceive something like that in, like that in the United States. And so I, I, I don't worry as much as I worry. Uh, I don't like it. No, let me, let me rephrase. I don't like it when I see him attack journalists, but I don't worry, in fact, as I do in Latin America when, when I see the same thing. Um, first of all, thank you for the uh, presentation. Um, I'm quite new to the scene and so on. Uh, I've studied a bit about press freedoms. Um, there's been a lot of great books on press freedoms. A lot of them are not actually from journalists or those that I actually studied who have uh, actually studied journalism. So my question would be, as the vanguard of this battle, so to say, uh, you press uh, the media at the forefront of this battle. Have you ever brought up, you know, in academics from other tradition, uh, other fields of study, and bring bring up solutions from their field of study um, to your sort of recommendation to solve this problem? I know uh, one of the um, common uh, solution would be to reform the, uh, the the constitution would be to change the law so that it gives more freedom to the press but there are other softer means as well from the field of psychology sociology and so on they have some solutions that you know you guys could possibly relay the message to the people so that they know what to do next instead of just asking for uh, the government to change the law which is important. Uh, that needs to be done, but at the same time, there are other ways we can you know, add to that as well. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, um, absolutely. I do think that it was an awakening um, for many of the traditional media companies and in many countries in Latin America where uh, there, there was a place of comfort uh, that they had reached, and um, there were a way that things were done, and these new regimes came in and changed the rules of the game, but they also changed the way to talk to the people. And there's a lot of things to be learned, um, especially with regards to being uh, more than a one-way conversation, which uh, the traditional media used to be, or is, uh, hopefully we're changing. Uh, but the, yes, I mean, traditional media outlets are used to just throwing information out there and sort of being in a higher level of, uh, of knowledge and a high, higher level of access to information. Um, and there is many lessons to be learned from uh, uh, the new uh, communication techniques, from new media, from uh, the younger generations who just don't want to be lectured at 
and you want to sort of foster that conversation and include uh, the information produced by uh, citizens, by uh, students, by social groups, by you know many different people, and sort of translate that and replicate that into society. Um, we, I mean, we do a lot of work, and and I think one of the, um, I guess, positive things that we can because we can always learn lessons, and especially from the hard times which uh, this decade really has been a very difficult one for us. And one of the things that we have learned is sort of to open our newsrooms uh, to listen to the, to the dissenting voices. We want to listen to the people who uh, think that we are publishing fake news. Uh, I mean, we, we have that sort of rhetoric in Latin America, and, and, and we want to go and sit with these people and, 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 and have a conversation and really try to figure out what is it that they want to see in the media. Um, because more often than not, it's sort of like a misconception of the, the way things are communicated rather than the content itself. And uh, we are trying to um, learn from these uh, new techniques. We are trying also to match the way that, um, the, 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 for example, populist, whatever we want to call them, regimes um, convey their political strategies. I think the opposition, for example, in places like Argentina or like Ecuador, uh, did have to up their game um, to match the the new marketing strategies, and I think in that sense, um, Jaime Duran Barba in Argentina, who's a fellow Ecuadorian, uh, has done a great job in researching and um, getting uh, uh, new ideas and new proposals and new strategies out for uh, the younger generations, so they can use uh, the communication strategies used by the populace and and also get some power back into uh, the houses of representatives and other branches of government. Well, thank you very much. I, I think that's what time will allow for. So uh, thank you all, and uh, uh, we hope that uh, this will contribute to creating uh, more awareness of what has been happening uh, in, in our countries uh, and in our continent. Thank you.